Good morning. I want to welcome all of our visitors here to with us this morning. I know some have come from out of town, and a couple announcements as we get started. One is the God in Your Brain DVDs are out. So if you're online and you haven't already requested some, then email us at requests at comeandreason.com, and we will ship you some for you to share at your church group. And again, not just one. If you have a, a group and you think, wow, you know, we could use 50, we'll ship you a case of them, and you can have them to share. And let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings you've given us. We thank you at this uh, Christmas season. It reminds us of, of your incarnation. You came, left heaven, came down here to, to re- reveal the truth and to provide what we needed for eternal life with you. We pray that you will be with us today as we study, that we can come to know you more fully and fulfill your purposes in our life. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are starting a new uh, lesson guide, and, and uh, I'm here to start it for once. Yes. <laughs> The website for those who would like online to find the lessons online, it's where? A-B-S-G. A-B-S-G. Dot Adventist. Dot Adventist. Dot org. Dot org. So if you want to go on there with your electronic uh, reader, you can go on there and potentially uh, find that at this time. So uh, discipleship is the new study guide. And um, the lesson this week, lesson one, is Disciples and Scripture. And before we begin this new quarter, though, I want to follow up with a point from last week. And remember last week, we were discussing this, this, this idea of baptism and church membership. And we're discussing why don't we baptize into Christ? Why do we baptize into, into denominations and some of the problems that have for individuals? Because if you're struggling with a problem in your life, a, a sin or whatever it might be, you can only have victory in union with Christ. And we want to bring people into that union. But sometimes we make obstacles by saying, well, you've got to quit this. You've got to change that before you can come into baptism. And uh, after class, Jim Ehrlich came up to me and said, hey, we could solve this problem by decoupling like the Bible did. Baptism into Christ is one thing. Church membership is actually something the church votes on. And so when people want to come to Christ and they're convicted by the Spirit, to go ahead and baptize them at that point in time. And then after they're baptized, then ask them, would you like to be a member of this organization? And if you'd like to be a member of this organization, well, here's what this organization believes. Here's what it stands for. Here are the things that, that we do. Do you want to affiliate yourself and, and, and join this, this group in this denomination? And so people could then be baptized into Christ and start their journey of victory, and then they could later determine whether they want to join a particular denomination. What do you guys think? I thought it was brilliant. It kind of solves the problem, doesn't it? Well, I thought, well, then why don't we do it that way? It's kind of biblical, isn't it? I mean, when the eunuch was convicted, when the Pentecost, they were convicted, they baptized into Christ at that moment. Why don't we do it that way? Well, I think maybe, this is just a hypothesis, it may not be the reason, but came to my mind is, that at some level we recognize when we baptize into Christ, at that moment the person enters the mystical body of Christ. They become part of the church universal. And maybe on some level we want to believe that our denomination represents that mythical body and that uh, they can't be part of the mythical body if they're not part of our denomination. So maybe that is a, a reason why. But could it be denominationalism has been misunderstood? Could it be that denominations are actually a manifestation of fracturing among the body of Christ? As confusion creeps in, and and, and that what should motivate one to join a denomination is not necessarily the same thing that motivates one to accept Christ. Specifically, can one join a denomination because they identify with the mission of that organization and want to use the gifts Christ has given them to further the mission of the organization? So, for instance, could there be two people, both who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, both who have surrendered their lives to Christ, both who accept Jesus and go, and go through baptism, both have a renewed heart, but have been led by the Holy Spirit to different fields of service. And the Holy Spirit leads one to one field of service, and the Holy Spirit leads another person to another field of service, meaning to one organization versus another organization. Or would we suggest that if the Holy Spirit is leading, everybody joins the same organization? Would we suggest that? So should we be leaving, leading people to Christ and let the Holy Spirit determine and convict them and invite them, share with them after they've accepted Christ, share, here's our mission, here's what our organization stands for, here's the principles we value, here's why, why I'm a member and why I use my methods and, and, and principles and gifts to, to, to promote the, the mission of this organization. I'd like to invite you to join us in this mission. And so we invite people to join the organization with a shared mission, but we don't connect that necessarily with, if you're not part of this mission, you're not part of Christ. 
People, anybody uncomfortable with that? It seems we could fix a lot that way. Yeah. Would uh, our arguments today over denominations be similar to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians? And this is out of 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 to 13. My brothers, my brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Peter. Still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Are we today doing this? Are we baptized into Luther, baptized into Calvin, baptized into Knox, baptized into White? Or are we baptized into Christ? Which brings us to the introduction to our lesson, which is Christ, our new quarter, Christ's example of making disciples of the Great Commission, the process whereby we become followers of Jesus. What is our, what is our mission to the world? How would you state our mission as a church, as an organization, as a denomination? What is the Great Commission that we believe it is our mission to, to fulfill? Everlasting gospel. Reveal Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, the everlasting. You can't go wrong with the everlasting gospel. I mean, this is Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always. So, baptizing them into the everlasting gospel, the good news, the kingdom of God. But what does it mean? What does it actually mean, functionally, to do that? I love this. Yes. What it means is to immerse baptism. Is it, does it mean simply dunking or sprinkling it with water? Is that what it's talking about? Or is it what Eve said, immersing someone's mind, heart, character into the truth of God's character, kingdom, methods, and principles of love? That real baptism is the immersion of the soul, the individual, into God's ways. What do you all think about that idea? which is symbolically then represented as a symbol with the water baptism. But the water baptism is symbolic of the immersion of the heart first. That's the conversion experience, the conviction. I've been changed. I love Christ. I open my heart to him. I want to submerse myself into his kingdom, and therefore I'll take this public stand. But can people actually be baptized into the organization by taking their public stand and going through the, the, the question list, do you agree to the 27, 28, blah, da, 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 and never actually have their heart immersed into the kingdom of God? Yeah. So we're to make followers of all people immersing their minds into God's kingdom, which means that they're, they're surrendering self. They're surrendering the, the self-motivation and, and dying to the ways of survival of the fittest and wanting to live a life of truth, love, liberty, freedom, God's methods. This is what one of the founders of our church wrote in Christ Object Lessons 415 regarding the mission of what this organization was called to do. And if you like this mission, then maybe you want to be part of this because this is what the mission is supposed to be. It says, in the darkness of, it is the darkness of misapprehension of God that enshrouds the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in his power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. That's the mission. This is what Christ actually dealt with 2,000 years ago. Isaiah prophesied that darkness would cover the people, a gross darkness covered the people. And John in John 1 says that Christ is the light that lightens the world. And even though the light is shining in the darkness, the darkness did not understand it. This is the same problem. And it's our mission to be the light. Let your light so shine before men. To lighten God's character, his methods, his principles. To reveal the, the methods of Christ in the way we live. This is the mission of the church. Is there still darkness in the world? Darkness in the church. And I say church, Christianity. And you can pick any denomination and, and in your mind ask this same question. Is there darkness in the church about God's character and methods of love? Yeah. Absolutely. This is why we are Laodicea. 
That's why we're asleep at the wheel. What do you do when you sleep at the wheel? You wreck. Church is a wreck. You think the church is a wreck? And, and what I mean by that is that, that it's fractured. It's broken. It's, it's, it's contradictory. There's arguments. It's pit. There's, there, there's these, these, these groups. Again, I mean, are we, do we have a single vision of God's character that we're taking to the world? And I don't mean denomination. I mean Christianity. According to the uh, Christian encyclopedia, there's 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible. 34,000. And if you're not a Christian and you look at that, 34,000 groups. What does that say to to a non-Christian? Man. Should we be promoting our denomination or our Savior Jesus Christ? Do we promote the kingdom of love by denominationalism, by harping our doctrinal differences against somebody else's doctrinal differences, and then attacking those other organizations for where they're wrong and bragging about how we're right? Am I making this up, or have you ever seen this happen? Is that promoting Christ? I think one of the devil's tricks is to get groups pitted against each other, arguing over various doctrinal points, while ignoring the truth of God's character and methods and principles. A point in case. 2,000 years ago, Sadducees and Pharisees argued constantly over the state of the dead. This was a big point of argument. You saw Paul used it at one point in a, a debate amongst them, uh, and, they turned, and they turned on each other and started fighting because it's such a point of heated debate among these two denominational Jewish groups, Sadducees and Pharisees. Yet, even though one of them, you may think, was right about the state of the dead, and the other one was wrong about the resurrection and the future life, they both so misunderstood the character of God that they united to kill him. There's a point in case here. You can be right on your doctrine and fight with those who are wrong on their doctrines and still crucify Christ. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. And I think this is like many, much of Christianity today. We're so pitted on doctrinal purity that we've actually forgotten what righteousness is. Stuff like which day is the Sabbath? What, what about the state of the dead? Foods the right to eat, right to, what, things to wear. Beast of Revelation, mark of the beast. What's the mark? What, the right, how does this prophecy end and, and how should it end? Um, but what does it matter if you get all that right? And you haven't been renewed in love in your heart. Don't take it from me. Take it from Paul. I'm going to read to you. This is Paul's words, not mine. I'm able to speak in languages of human beings and even of angels. But if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge and all understand all secrets. Meaning, I may get all my doctrines right. I got it right. Got all the points right. Got all the prophecies right. Got all my, my, my exegesis of scripture right. I got, I, I have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have the, uh, all the faith needed to move mountains, but if I have no love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have and even go to give up my body to be burned. I might be a martyr for the cause. But if I have no love, this does me no good. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. God is love. How many times do we teach he's got this record he's going to keep in heaven that you're going to have to answer to one day because he's going to punish you based on that record? Wow. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Either God is love and he doesn't keep that record or he's something other than love. We've got a contradiction here. I'm not saying there aren't records, guys. You know there are records. I have a whole teaching on The Bible is very clear. There are records. But what is the purpose of those records? The one idea when you have imperialism, when you have Roman imposed law construct, you have to have records to, to, uh, to review with a list of all the bad deeds and things done. But when you have the designer law, God is the creator. He's the designer. He's the builder. Deviations are out of harmony with his design and result in death. Then you have records documenting how he has done everything to heal you and you've rejected it. And so the story of a, of a person in the hospital who's dying of a terminal condition and they refuse the treatment. They won't allow it because of their religious beliefs or whatever other. And there's copious medical records being kept documenting everything and the person ultimately dies. Those records are there for what reason? To indict 
and condemn and punish the one who refused the, the treatment? Or to exonerate the healthcare team to show they did everything and they left nothing undone that could have saved the person if they would have been willing? This is why Paul says in Romans 3, 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. Because God was accused of being unfair. So continue on with Paul. Love is happy. Love, love, is, uh, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up. It's, and its faith, hope, and patience never fail. Love is eternal. Why is love eternal? God is love. God is eternal. Okay? This is why love is eternal. This is an expression of God's methods, of his character, of the way he does business. There are, there are inspired messages, meaning prophecies, but they are temporary. There are gifts of speaking in strange tongues, but they will cease. There is knowledge, but it will pass. For our gifts of knowledge and our inspired messages are only partial, but when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. When I was a child, my speech, feelings, and thinking were all those of a child. Now that I have grown up, I have no more use for childish ways. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Meanwhile, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Do you see the message here? It doesn't matter if your doctrines are right if you haven't been renewed to be like Christ in character. You're still terminal. You're still deviant from God's design. You're still out of harmony with the way he built life. You're still dying in your condition. And you're contagious. And you're contagious because you infect other people with distorted views of God, with your right doctrines. And this is what Christ meant to the Jews when he said, you search the world over to find a convert, and when you do, you make him twice the son of hell. You make it harder for him, not easier, because now you put this list of man-made rules that you've piled up because you think you've got to do all this stuff to be holy, rather than leading them. That these, are, these are the scriptures which teach of me, but you think you find in them eternal life by, by keeping all the rules. But no, they lead to me. I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's also contagious. That is also contagious, yeah. The truth will set you free. So think about it this way. Without the experience of God's love, without partaking the kingdom of love, without being immersed in soul, in mind, in character, into godliness, to have the Holy Spirit renew you within, without that, all right doctrine, right prophecy, right languages don't mean anything because you're still out of harmony with God. But if someone has a renewed heart where they've had the law written on the heart and mind, and this is what Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 2, those who have not heard the law, the scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are law unto themselves, their conscience bearing witness, showing that the law has been written on their heart. New covenant experience. I'll write my law where? On your heart and mind. It's the renewal of the law of love, the methods and principles of God being reproduced within. If somebody's experienced that, but they misunderstand a Bible prophecy. They don't understand the state of the dead the way that you understand the state of the dead. Does it really, is it going to keep them out of heaven? No. In fact, does anybody believe that when Christ returns, that amongst the saved, there will be one person on earth who understands every text of the Bible correctly? There won't be one. But amongst the saved, won't all of them have been renewed to be like Christ in character and heart? Tim, frankly, I'm looking for the big seminar we've got since all the theologians are together and says, well, you get it almost right. Now, here's what really happened. That's one session I want to be in. That's going to be a fun session in heaven. And see, this is the part about the, the attitude of the heart. And this is why we teach in here, we never want to arrive at the truth. Because God's infinite, we're finite. The gap between our understanding and, and him is infinite. We want to be growing, advancing in the truth as the truth is unfolding. We, and this is why those in, in, in uh, Thessalonians who are lost are lost because, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be saved. Meaning, they didn't have a mind open to be taught. They wouldn't grow. They wouldn't advance. They came to certain doctrines and they set down their roots and they began to defend them. They wouldn't advance in those understandings. This is the truth and we're not going to budge from it. And this is why there are so many denominations. Martin Luther discovered truth, and he, and he tried to reform his organization, but his organization wouldn't reform because they were the bastion of truth. And so he was booted, and a new organization began, and he advanced the truth. But then when he died, his organization said, Martin Luther's got the truth, and this is it, and we've set down our roots, and we've got to defend. And then somebody else comes along, 
Calvin, John Knox, they advance the truth, and so forth. You see this march of advance. But then as the reformers of those organizations die, those who have, have participated in this advancing light, they set down their roots, and we stop advancing. I never want to arrive. I want to continually, for all eternity future, my finite mind wants to grow. I want to learn more. I want to discover more. I want to have deeper insights. God's infinite. I will never come to a point where I know it all. Never. But I want to grow. Do you want to grow? Develop a heart that loves truth and will move forward from your current understandings as the Holy Spirit presents those evidences to you. Yes, Lily. But there are some truths that never change. You know, there are some, you know, about the gospel, about God's love, you know, the state of the dead. I mean, I don't see those truths necessarily changing. So I think there is some things that we should fight for because they don't change. Because yep. the Bible says that God doesn't change. So, I mean, we should continue to grow, but there are some points that stay the same. And, and so you just named one that I think is a foundational one, and I agree with you, that never changes. And you said... God never changes. And God, therefore, is what? Love. And so we can be sure that God never changes from his character of love. Yet, much of Christianity teaches a God who is something other than love. Yes? Well, the same God of love, I mean, according to Luke 12, 5, says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I fear fear him. So just because he's a God of love doesn't mean I love, we love our children, yet we do punish them when they do something wrong. I mean, you know what I mean? I don't know how that comes away from God being love if he gives to each one according to what they have done. You know? It's a very interesting question, isn't it? Giving each one according to what they've done. Meaning, if you love someone, will you give them the freedom to make their choices for themselves or will you make choices for them? At Once they're old enough to make their own choices, of course. Not as an infant or a child. Yes? As a parent, the way I parented my children when they were young, and as I have grown and matured even more so, hopefully, okay, looking back, I would do it differently because my understanding of raising children has grown. And I think that's the whole way way it is with our understanding of God. You know, as a baby, we may understand God this particular way, but as we grow in our understanding of God, we will respond differently. Hopefully. Yeah, and if you were um, if you were driving along and uh, maybe or walking along, and you and you come up to a house and you see you see a uh, a child riding their tricycle down their 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 driveway, and and there's a hedge and the child can't see the, the hedge and, and and there's a car coming and they're heading for the street. The parents up on the porch they can see over the hedge. They see the the car coming. They shout to their child, "Stop!" But the child doesn't listen. They're having fun. They're laughing. They're, they're not paying attention. The, 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 child, the parent shouts louder. Maybe the parent even threatens to do bodily harm. I'm going to beat you, spank you, if you don't stop. If you heard that from across the neighborhood, somebody heard it from across the neighborhood, might they draw conclusions that that parent is being cruel. That's a cruel parent. You see, when you look at God's language in Scripture, Look at the context of what is transpiring. Look who he's speaking to. Look at the audience and their capacity for understanding. When you instruct a three-year-old on why they brush their teeth, do you speak the same way as you do to a 20-year-old on the benefits of brushing teeth and why they should brush? God is speaking to a lot of very primitive people in Scripture um, at various times in their life. Those in Christ's day that he spoke to personally, what concept of God did they hold? Were they in the light or were they in the dark? What did Jesus say about them? That their father was who? He said directly, you're you're of your father the... Does that mean their Holy Spirit enlightened in their thinking? So when he speaks to them, can he speak mature words to them? Or does he have to get very basic and very childish? And this is some of the things Lily reads to us from Scripture. He's speaking to them because he loves them and he wants them to understand there's a, there's a p- coming punishment, but they can't comprehend the larger realities of God's kingdom. This is the Old Testament Scripture. This is why in Kings, when um, Ahab went to Jehoshaphat and asked Jehoshaphat to join him in a war against Ramath Gilead, and, and Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of the Lord, and Ahab says, uh, I don't like the prophets. They never say anything good, but we'll, we'll get one. And they bring in Micaiah. And Micaiah, that Ahab says, okay, Micaiah, should we go into war against Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah initially says, yep, go, you'll win. 
And Ahab, evidently the tone was such, it was sarcastic, because Ahab's comment right in Scripture was, how many times have I told you to tell me the truth and not play with me, basically? So Micaiah says, gives him this example. He says, the Lord called a council in heaven, and the various spirits came, and, one, and, and, and the Lord said, how can we lure Ahab into his death against Ramoth Gilead? And one spirit said this, and one suggested that, and one finally said, I will go, and I, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, and we will lure him into, into battle. And the Lord said, go and do it. It's right in Scripture. You can read. Check me out on this. Be a Berean. Check me out. Now, do we actually believe, do we take this Scripture literally? Do we say that because this is a prophet giving a description that God sends spirits to lie? Why would he have a prophet say this to a king? Who was Ahab and who did Ahab worship? He worshiped Baal. What is this concept of the universe? What is this concept of God? Is, is, is Ahab open to actually hearing the grand scheme of how God runs his universe with freedom of choice? Or does Ahab have authoritarian dictator God and he has this belief that God controls everything so if it happens, God must be doing it. So God meets Ahab where his thinking is and sends a message designed to save Ahab. If he listens to the message, he's not going to go because he's being tricked. He's going to go into a war and get killed. This was Mercy. But he speaks a language the audience needs. But children don't understand. This is what you see in Hebrews chapter 5, where Paul says, you ought to be on spiritual meat by now. But you're still infants on milk. Those infants on milk are not acquainted with righteousness. Meaning you're not righteous, you're unrighteous. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. You're still focused on acts that lead to death, the do's and the don'ts and the behaviors. And when you're focused there, you're unrighteous. Yes, Lily. Okay, so, I mean, I disagree with what you're saying because uh, the word punish or judgment and all that goes with that is not only, God doesn't talk about it like that only in the Old Testament. I mean, clearly, here we are, Luke 12, 5. But I will show you whom you shall fear. Fear him who, after he has killed... Okay, this is the Bible, not me. Has power to cast into hell. He has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you. Please. I want to know what, where you're at. What verse? Luke 12, 5. Can somebody look that up in a different version, please? Okay. So what I'm saying is this is not the only verse in the New Testament. So is God still speaking to them as children in the New Testament? Yes. And now he's revealed to us, so the Bible's wrong in some way. <laughs> when he says punish in the New Testament, it's not actually punishment. Can somebody read, read Luke 12? What was it again? 12 what? Five. 12, 5. Go ahead and read, read it. What, and what, this, this is King James? King James. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Okay, and, and any other translations? That was King James. Any others? Good news. will show you whom to fear. Fear God, who after killing has the authority to throw into hell. Believe me, he is the one you must fear. Okay, and what is it? So, so the Bible says these words. The question now is, what does it mean? What does it mean? What it says. The message version. What's the message? Yeah. This is verse four and five. I'm speaking to you as dear friends. Don't be bluffed into silence or insincerity by the threats of religious bullies. True, they can kill you, but then what can they do? There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God, who holds your entire life, body, and soul in His hands. Yeah, I think that's that's getting to the meat of it. Um, what do we see, to answer a question like this? You actually have to understand a whole lot of other material. When you go to a passage like this, not understanding what hell is, number one, you don't understand what hell is. You'll draw conclusions. Not understanding how God takes action, and what killing and how killing comes about, and what it means to kill. When you don't understand these things first, what God's wrath is according to Scripture, you don't understand these things first, and you come with a human conception, then you can take a passage like this and you can draw all kinds of wrong ideas about it. The word Lord or God or whatever in that text is supplied by the translators. It doesn't say fear God or whatever. It says fear the one. That's right. Okay. And who's the one who has the power to put you in hell? Me. That's exactly what it means. Fear yourselves. Fear your refusal to accept salvation. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are born in a terminal condition. As the Bible says in Romans, our hearts are naturally at war with God. We're against him. God, however, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did not send his son to condemn the world, but through him to save the world. So God's agenda is to heal and save. It's up to us 
whether we accept his salvation or reject it, our rejection of salvation condemns us. That's why Christ himself said, this is, this is one of the problems when you take passages out of isolation to support a preconceived idea. Put Christ's other words together. By your words you will be acquitted. By your words you will be condemned. This is, this is Christ. Your own words will be the, what condemns you. All, all judgment is given to me, but I won't judge anyone, he says. This is Christ's words again, not mine. Because it's by your own words, your own conduct. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good in him. The evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. And so ultimately, how we judge God, do you judge God as a being you can trust and you want to follow and be like him? Or do you judge God as a being who you can't trust and you don't want to be like him? This determines your destiny. God doesn't determine your destiny. You determine your destiny. Thus, you have the power to put yourself in hell. But if you prefer a God who does these types of things, then you like the supplied word of Lord in there. Not in the actual Greek. Yes? Now, when we look at truth, it is true that truth is progressive in the sense that our understanding grows as we contemplate Scripture, as we understand uh, kind of the deeper meaning behind things. Absolutely. Absolutely, it grows in that way. But I think when we look at Scripture... Like you said, we can um, impose upon our own preconceived notions of kind of what these verses mean. And in the light of some new truth, we can, we can fundamentally reinterpret every scripture based upon our preconceived notion, looking back on it. And I think that, you know, as we look for, you know, uh, a deeper understanding of the truth, I think when I look at scripture... Uh, I think the words that Scripture uses are, in, are important. The, the words are consistently used throughout Scripture. And I don't think it's easy enough to say, as, well, they were in the darkness, so God had to use these dark words. But now, since we're in such great light, those dark words actually have a totally different understanding, a totally different meaning. I think the words God's use are, are very important. And just as I don't think we can say, well, they were in abject darkness throughout the entire scripture, and now we are uh, in much closer harmony with the light, therefore all those words don't actually mean what they, what they say. The words actually have the opposite meaning of what they say. For its punishment doesn't really mean punishment. By, you know, uh, avenge doesn't really mean avenge. It actually means something that's totally opposite of what it means. Actually, I didn't say punishment didn't mean punishment. There is a terrible punishment. But where does the punishment originate? Does the punishment originate in the heart and character of God who inflicts an external pain and suffering upon those who would not otherwise suffer, or does the punishment originate in the condition itself of being deviant from God's design? You see, the devil didn't say God didn't have power. The devil says God's not good. And if you take the idea that God is the source of punishment, here's the devil's argument. It is the devil's argument. The Desire of Ages 761, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he's not a God of truth and justice. This is Satan's view of God. It's like saying, hey, God, hey, guys, there's nothing wrong with sin. If God could just get a little hold on his own wrath and anger and not lash out with his power to hurt us, we could live for eternity in sin because there's nothing wrong with it. There's something wrong with God who uses power to punish and cause pain for people who would not otherwise have pain from their sin. This is a fundamental defect in understanding God's nature, character, the nature and character of sin, and God's laws, the design protocols for life. We come back to those truths and realities. We understand God does not have to flick pain on somebody for, for deviating from his law any more than you have to punish somebody for jumping off the Empire State building. It's deviant from the way life is designed to operate. But if you have an imposed Roman law construct, which is what human law is based upon, then you believe there's no inherent consequence and God must punish. And if he doesn't, he's unjust. And people who see God this way under, understandably will passionately argue the need for punishment inflicted because they believe if God doesn't do it, he's an unjust God. I'm going to move on with the lesson at this point. Um, if we separate doctrine from God's character and stand them up like toy soldiers, and stand them up like toy soldiers. This is a, this is one of the problems we do with, with denominations. We argue our, our, our things back and forth, but doctrine has its place. And the point of doctrine is every doctrine informs us rightly or wrongly, depending on our doctrine, about God's character. This is why we promote this. this we did not produce it, but we promote this. This is the fundamental focus, which shows all of our doctrines, rightly understood, reveal God's character of love. Rightly understood. But if you stand them up and separate them, say to the dead, Sabbath, uh, tw you know, the 2300 uh, day prophecy, and you stand them up separated from God's character, then you end up with a, a system 
of believe this, believe this, believe this, uh, we have the right state of the debt, and then we argue over that with other organizations. We'll put up billboards that certain things mean means mark of the beast, and we'll criticize others who have a different view. But we have no love, like Paul said. We're not being transformed. It asks us to look at how Christ drew people to himself. If we're going to be like Christ, how did he draw people to himself? How did he, yeah. So so the first thing I put down was miracles, but I want to clarify that. Miracles were done as an outworking of love to those whose hearts were open to receive truth and love. Miracles were not done as proof or evidence to win converts or followers or to pass some test of of orthodoxy, Mark 8, 11. Uh, Some Pharisees came to Jesus and and, uh, started to argue with him. They wanted to trap him, so they asked him to perform some miracle to show that God approved of him. But Jesus gave a deep groan and said, Why do, do the people of this day ask for a miracle? I tell you, no such proof will be given these people. So miracles were not used to prove anything. They were, they were done for those who already had confidence and hearts were open to receive what, what Christ wanted to do for them. Okay, so miracle. But then you said kindness. That's a big umbrella. I mean, I think, I think a more important part of that is uh, an attitude of non-condemnation. Do, do, people do it like the, the woman accused of adultery. Do you see Christ being judgmental? No. Being elitist? Condemning sin when he sees it? We can read some of his language to the Pharisees as that, but he did that out of a heart of love. He wanted them, he wanted them to come into unity and understanding. If, if you see him condemning sin, look at the sins that he confronted. Did he confront prostitution? No. Homosexuality? No. Slavery? Uh, 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 drunkenness, debauchery of any kind, gluttony. Now what, what was the thing he confronted over and over and over again? There was one type of sin he constantly confronted. Pride and self-righteousness, which, which functionally was doing what? It had a function. It was, it was serving a purpose. This pride and self-righteousness was actually doing something. And what was it doing? obstructing the truth of God's character. How dare you turn my father's house into a house of merchandise? Everything he confronted was a confrontation of the actions and behaviors that actually made God look like a dictator. That's what he confronted. The things that we focus on in his organization oftentimes, he didn't confront. He delivered. He healed. He, he showed mercy. He showed grace. He, he, he associated with the prostitutes. He ate with the tax collectors. He touched the lepers. He touched them. You understand what that meant? He touched them. To touch a leper in Jewish culture, no one would, they were called untouchables. No one would touch them because you would be unclean. You'd be out of favor with God. He touched them. He broke the norm. He talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. He knew that every one of these things were the result of sin. And he knew that that's what he came for. Yes, the result of sin. And he wanted to heal the heart. He knew this way, he said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you look at one with lust in your heart. See, the bad action is a symptom of a heart condition. I'm here to change the heart. He's not here to condemn the world, but to save. John 3.17. To save, to heal, to restore, to redeem, to recreate, to rejuvenate, to rebuild. To renew, to remove the heart of stone, put it in the heart of flesh, to circumcise the heart by the Spirit. Do you understand? God actually wants to transform the sinner. But these, these certain views of God that are presented in the church of, about an imperial dictator who must use his power to inflict punishment obstruct his mission. It actually obstructs the mission of the church because people won't trust him. Now, I'll just give you an example. Imagine, and this is an example I've used before, but imagine that IV heroin addict who's been infected in his heart with, 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 with uh, infection from using dirty needles. Does he want to go to the magistrate and have his misdeeds and illegal behavior presented to the judge for judgment? Absolutely not. Does he want to go to the doctor and have all of his own behaviors and his horrible condition presented to the doctor for diagnosis, judgment, and treatment? Absolutely. When we present God as an imperial dictator and judge, we obstruct people from surrendering their hearts to him. They want to get Jesus to protect them from him. But when we present him as the, the creator, the designer, who wants to heal and restore, people flock to him and say, uh, search me and see the wicked way in me, O God. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. This is what David prayed. This is what God is longing for. Satan does not want this view of God out. So he wants us to put this dictator view of God who we must fear because he's going to torture and kill us. 
Sabbath memory verse, it says, search the scriptures for them. You think they, uh, that you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. John five thirty nine. This is the same thing. We talked about the doctrines going through the scriptures and lining up right doctrines, but not being led to Christ in his kingdom. Does you no good? That's the point. Sunday's lesson says us uh, uh, second paragraph. It says the narrative of Christ's wilderness temptations show that by quoting scripture, Jesus rebuffed every satanic challenge and invitation. The scripture scrolls were not likely available to Christ during the 40-day desert sojourn. This clearly indicates that Christ had committed substantial portions of Scripture to memory. While the Scriptures quoted in the wilderness were taken from the writings of Moses, Jesus quoted elsewhere from other parts of the Hebrew Scripture. Clearly, Christ had a widespread knowledge of Scripture. No question, Christ knew the Scriptures. No question about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So did Satan. So so the question is, Did they're suggesting that Christ overcame the devil by quoting Scripture. Did he? Think carefully. Did Christ overcome by quoting scripture or by choosing to live in harmony with the scripture, practice God's methods and principles as taught in the scripture, and use the scripture to convey his purposes and intentions of his heart and his attitude? In other words, Christ comprehended and practiced what the scripture taught. He didn't just merely memorize and quote scripture when in crisis. This is a big difference. I have many patients who actually have times they've come to see me because they've been distressed because they've had this idea put forth in church. You know, you overcome by quoting scripture. And so they've memorized scripture. And when a crisis comes, they quote the scripture. I've also had some who will never travel without a Bible in their dashboard. Because they believe the Bible, then the, the, that gives them protection from beginning an accident. You've never heard that happen? Now, some of you say yes, but I've heard people, they won't travel that because the Bible, there's, you know, it's the word of God. It's going to protect them. This is bibliolatry. God protects, not the Bible. The Bible is also based on the laws of physics as well. (laughs) (laughs) And the same thing is true. God's word. Now, I'm not undermining scripture. It is God's word inspired, but it must be understood and comprehended and practiced in the heart. It's just not a matter of memorization and quotation. That is insufficient. Some use the scripture like magical incantations. Just as with doctrine, if we separate the scripture from their connection with God, his character, his methods. And this is where some of these distorted views of God come. What lens do you look at the scripture through? What lens? First paragraph, Monday's lesson. And by the way, the lesson supports me on this perspective. In the bottom of the, of the Sunday's lesson, it says, though it's important to know the Bible, that alone isn't enough. Some of the biggest named Bible scholars have not even been believing Christians. So just knowing what the scripture says and being able to cite it is not enough. Um, Monday, first paragraph. Whenever Christ debated with the religious authorities, he relied not on abstract philosophy, not even on personal authority, but on the teaching of scripture. When determining right or wrong, Jesus based his arguments on scriptural bedrock. When opponents challenged Christ's doctrinal purity, he directed them to specific passages within Scripture. When considering practical matters, Jesus referred his listeners to divine revelation. Christ understood that he divinely, his divinely ordained mission was to accomplish that which the ancient prophets had predicted. Do you get the feel from this passage you're trying to suggest that there's a singular method for reaching people, and that is it's the Scripture? Does it almost sound that way? That they're making the argument, Christ used this method, so this is the method to be used. Notice, though, they did rightly say in the beginning, when speaking to the religious authorities. What method did he use when speaking to Pilate? The woman at the well. Many of the other people were not... He used parables. With Pilate, he didn't quote scripture. Why did he not quote scripture to Pilate? Yeah, see, this idea... I'm not disputing the, the, the bedrock of scripture that we should build on. I'm not disputing that. But if you go out to somebody who doesn't currently believe in God and doesn't currently believe the Bible and you start quoting Bible texts to them, what likely outcome are you going to get? You're not going to win people by quoting Scripture to people who ridicule Scripture. We've got to reach them in other ways and bring some, some willingness to at least examine and be open to the Scripture before you just start quoting Bible verses. Some of the worst witnessing to the kingdom is when people stand out with, with Bible quotations and, 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 and chant it in front of some, some group that doesn't believe in God. It's, it's horrible witness. This is not, Christ didn't do this. 
So I'm not disputing the validity of Scripture, but he was talking to religious authorities who based their beliefs on Scripture, so he used Scripture, their authority, to show them where they were wrong. This was a very valid and appropriate use of Scripture. But he didn't quote Scripture to Pilate. Because Pilate would have not listened. It's, not, it's your Jewish stuff. I don't listen to that. That's, that's your, your stuff. Tim, I think it's if I be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. And that lifting up is uh, the showing of the, the person of Christ and the character, not necessarily. Yes, and if you look at the life of Christ and the methods he used, he actually used three threads of evidence. He used scripture. No question he used scripture. He also used science and nature constantly looking at the examples of the wheat falls and it grows. You can tell the signs of the times in nature. You can do this, that. constantly using science and nature. And he used science and nature in healing, demonstrating the, the, the plan of healing by healing the diseases that were representation of sin. When he heals a leper, when he hears a paralytic, he's demonstrating, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. He is connecting in their minds. Hey, maybe forgiveness is really about transformation and renewal and rebuilding. Maybe it's not just some legal thing. He's trying to help them see. And then, of course, he uses experience. He, he said directly to, to Thomas, hey, put your hands right here. Feel. Check it out. Have faith and stop doubting. Use your experience in addition to Scripture and science. Three threads God's given us. When we separate the three threads. We get in problems. We know what the problems are. So I want to test you guys today. Science alone leads to... <laughs> science alone risks going where? Godlessness. Evolutionism. Science alone. Experience alone risks going where? Mysticism. Scripture alone. Without the other two to anchor it? Yes, confusion. 34,000 different Christian groups all arguing the Bible supports them. It leads to confusion. This is what the, 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 the Revelation talks about, the church looking like Babylon, a confused mess. Because we've, we've uncoupled what the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 1, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. Nature is one of the threads God reveals himself through. And it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience me. Check me out. We have the experience. And we have scripture. And all three are to be harmonized. And when you harmonize all three, then certain ideas about God are excluded. Particularly the devil's imperial legalistic views of God cannot hold there. This is why those who hold this dictator view of God don't want to use the other two threads because it excludes them. So other problems with using Scripture alone. One, it's not sufficient. Using Scripture by itself and not including the other, it's not sufficient to reach people who don't believe the Scripture already. They just won't even listen to you. They think you're a wacko or a a nut job. But... For those who do believe the scripture, what about those who promote, promoted slavery? What did they use to promote it for many years? Scripture. What about those who promoted polygamy? What did they use to promote it? I'm not saying they interpreted it right. I'm just saying they used the scripture. It's all. I'm not saying they got it right. Uh, those who continue to promote, continue today in our own church to promote the inequality of women in the church. The inequality. What did they use? Scripture. scripture. Those who promote God as the source. Notice the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death. God is not the source of life only. He's the source of death. What do they use? Scripture. Those who attack homosexuals use Scripture. Notice I said attack homosexuals. Not point out that homosexuality was not God's design. Those are two different things. God did not design homosexuality. But that's different than attacking homosexuals. Is it not? Mm-hmm. Those who suggest God must be appeased, they also use Scripture. So am I saying Scripture is unreliable or uninspired or has faults in any way? Not at all. Absolutely not. I have every confidence in God's Word as inspired by God for our salvation, yet the Word can be misused, misapplied. So relying solely on Scripture opens us up to deception. And Christ used all three. But what made Christ's use of Scripture different than Satan's use? Remember, Satan took him to the temple and quoted Scripture. Did he not? What's the difference between Christ's use of Scripture and Satan's use of Scripture? They both quote it. What's the difference? Number one, Christ understood it. (laughs) Number one, he understood what it really means. Number two, Christ knew his Father. He knew his 
father. He knew his father's character. He knew his father's methods. He knew his father's motives. He knew his father's principles. He knew his father's kingdom. He knew the law of love as the design protocols for life. He knew God was not a Roman dictator. Thus, when he read scripture, he saw God's character and he could understand it properly. But those who opposed Jesus used the scriptures but read through it a different filter, a different concept of God, a God they conceived of as being intolerant and prejudicial and legalistic God required penalties be paid. Thus, those seeing they did not see and hearing, they did not hear. This is a couple of quotations from one of the founders of our church. First one's at Christian Education, page 66. It says, in the study of the sciences, also we are to obtain a knowledge of the creator. All true science is but an interpretation of the handwriting of God in the material world. Science brings from her research only fresh evidences of the wisdom and power of God. Rightly understood, both the book of nature and the written word make us acquainted with God by teaching us something of the wise and beneficent laws which, which he works through which he works. And this is education, page 130. Rightly understood, both the revelations of science and experiences of life are in harmony with the testimony of Scripture to the constant working of God in nature. See, the integrative, evidence-based approach. Harmonizing Scripture, science, experience, finding the harmony. If we find disharmony, and notice it says, rightly understood, both the book of nature and written word make us acquainted. Which side of that can be misunderstood? Book of nature or scripture or both? That's the problem. See, some people have, well, this is what the Bible teaches. I was taught this from, 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 from childhood, and this has been the tradition of the church for 700 years, and therefore, um, that's, that, that's true. If I misunderstand, it must be science that's being misunderstood. No, you can have misunderstandings on both sides. Galileo came and said, no, the earth is not the center of the universe. The, the, the authority said, you're misunderstanding science. You're wrong. No, there was a misunderstanding of their understanding of Scripture in that case. They misunderstood Scripture. Scripture never meant that. It could mean that the, the earth is the center of God's affections and heart. That's okay, but not the center of the physical universe. You see, we have to balance and find the harmony where both are true. And in our experience, all three are true. This week I received an email from one of our online listeners, Mark Uck, um, who uh, sent this quote from Derek Barton, who is a Nobel laureate in chemistry. And this is the quote. God is truth. There is no incompatibility between science and religion. Both are seeking the same truth. Science shows that God exists. I like it. Yeah, I think that's a good one. So Tuesday's lesson, second paragraph. During Christ's earthly sojourn, the ordinary Israelites relationship with scripture was apparently highly legalistic. They looked to scripture for regulations and ethical guidance. Upright behavior was considered the payment for eternal bliss. Jesus, however, overturned their legalistic notions and substituted a heart-based religion for systems of external controls. And then it goes in the next paragraph. It says, Christ-centered religion is rooted in the heart transformation that leads to ethical behavior. Heart transformation that leads to ethical behavior. Any examples of unethical behavior because people are following the rules they believe they get from Scripture? Any examples can you cite? Unethical behavior. Picketing soldiers' funeral with a sign that says God hates fags. I, I, brilliant. The first one on here, violence against homosexuals or these type of things. This is unethical. Uh, shooting abortion doctors or blowing up abortion clinics in the name of Christ. Agree? Unethical? What about passing laws forcing people to worship in certain ways or go to church on certain days, be baptized in certain ways because one believes the Bible describes a particular day or method as the correct one? Would that be ethical or unethical? What about using the power of the state to enforce one's religious beliefs on others, like banning abortion? Ethical or unethical? What about the church firing a woman from her church-employed position because she divorced her husband after years of physical abuse, but he complained there weren't biblical grounds because he had not committed adultery? And so the church fires her. Ethical or unethical? This is unethical. These are, uh, some of these I'm not making up. These are true. How about this one? Maybe if you watched the news recently, you heard about this one. This is not too far afield. In fact, it might have happened in this room. 
What about a disfellowshipping of a woman who sits at a hearing in Collegedale for her daughter who's seeking partner benefits for her lesbian partner, even though the mother, who was disfellowshipped from her church, never speaks up in favor, just sits there next to her daughter to support her during the hearing? So the, no, notice who got disfellowshipped. It wasn't the person seeking partner benefits got disfellowshipped. The mother of that person sits in, sits in the court hearing beside her daughter, and the, and, and the church she belongs to disfellowships her from church for sitting there. And they said publicly that we have to take a stand against sin, and we have to take a stand against homosexuality. You know what? What would they have done with Christ for going to dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors? They would have disfellowshipped him, wouldn't they? He's sitting next to a prostitute. What's he doing? And there's a church that fires the pastor for marrying his gay son this past month. Ah, I didn't hear that one. Removed from office. Yeah. Who is more Christ-like, the mother who sits next to her lesbian daughter, or the church leaders taking a stand against sin and disfellowshipping her from church membership? Who is being more like Jesus? Clearly. But see, when you have an imperial law and you have an imposed set of rules that you have to adhere to, and you have a misconception of God as a dictator who must punish, then you've got to take these actions. Because it's what God does. There's no natural inherent consequence to sin, you say. It's something that has to be enforced by ruling authorities. We have to enforce the rules. But when you have a designer, a creator, who builds his universe to operate on certain principles, you don't have to inflict harm. You have to deliver people from being harmed from their own choices. It's a huge, huge difference. So where do we focus? We, we focus on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So any examples of scripture of uh, people doing things that would be considered sin, but God recognizing them as righteous? Rahab. Where do we find Rahab? In the, Rahab was a prostitute, and what did she do of note? She hid and lied. That's what she did of note. We find no record of confession. I'm sorry, I lied. No record of repentance for that. But we find her in the hall of faith. God recognized her as righteous. See, when you have a legal rule, she can't be righteous. She lied. But when you have a heart issue, God looked at the heart and said, wait a minute, Rahab made a heart change. She chose me. She sided with me. She opened herself with me. She put herself at harm's way for me and my people. Now, she's not very mature. She's still like a child. She hasn't grown up in the wide ways and methods, but, that, but she will. She walks with me and journeys with me. She'll grow up. But right now, she's a child, and she chose me. She put her heart on my side. How about this one? This one really gets people. David, David, after the adultery and after the murder and after the repentance, when did sin with Bathsheba no longer constitute sin? I mean, sex with Bathsheba. Think about it. This was not his wife. He had an adulterous relationship with her. He murdered her husband. He repents and then marries her. Wait a minute. What is that? How can he possibly, isn't repentance turning away from? He didn't turn away from, he turned toward. He embraced her. He elevated her above all the other wives. How is this not still sin? Man looks on the outward appearance. The legalists that impose law, they can't get their mind around it. But God looks on the heart. David didn't repent from Bathsheba. He repented from selfishness in his heart and began to love others more than self. And after having taken her husband in that society, he had a responsibility to restore as far as possible what he took from her. He took her husband. He took her station. He took her name. He took her livelihood. He took her home. In that society, she could own no property. She would be homeless and on the street and destitute. And he had a responsibility, if he loved her, to restore as far as possible what he had taken from her. And the only way to do that was to marry her so his heart changed i don't want to be selfish i don't want to protect me anymore i don't want to just murder her and pretend it never happened and hide from this so my good name and the politic will be good no i will risk the damage and the fallout to do what's right i'll love her in a godly way so he marries her but see if you have a list of rules he can't do that he's got to turn away and so you follow the rules turn away he actually adds more injury and more sin to what he's already done it's not redemptive this is what happens and, and we're out of time. We're already two minutes over. <laughs> our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of goodness, a God of grace, a God who is our creator, our designer, who built the universe to operate in harmony with your nature of love. Lord, it is true, and it's sad that we haven't understood. And many times we all have gone astray. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, and we haven't understood, and we've done a lot of stuff that's been injurious to us. And like a loving parent, Lord, 
You've come and you've tried to hedge us in with a hedge of protection. Tried to show us and provide us diagnostic tools to expose the, the sickness in our heart that leads us back to you. The creator, the designer, the redeemer who will heal us and restore us if we trust you. But Lord, we can't trust one who's out to kill us. And thus you sent us Christ so we could see that even when we are killing you, you forgive us. You're not out to kill us. You're out to save us. May, may the truth of what you've done for us break through the traditions and the distortions that have been piled up for centuries in our heads in our, and in our churches. That we can come back to, to love you with our whole mind, our whole heart, our whole soul, and our whole being, and our neighbor as ourselves. We pray in your holy name. Amen.